Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme and thank you to uh, John Paul sitting in for me yesterday when I had a kind of an extended bank holiday a break but good to be back. Now the GAA world was united in mourning last night following the announcement of the sudden death of Cork Jewel star Teddy McCarthy. Fimber McCarthy our GAA correspondent joins me uh, to remember uh, Teddy. Good morning to you Fimber. Hey, good morning Patricia, how are you? I'm very well thank you. The, the news of his passing has it been met with utter shock throughout the GAA world, not just here in Cork? Oh, un- unbelievable, sa- unbelievably sad news, uh, Trisha. I was actually at the county board meeting last night, how ironic, in, in Parking Key, because our club delegate was in the holidays and I was doing proxy, and my phone started ringing and I couldn't answer because I didn't sign in. And then I got a text message from a good friend of mine, Pat Keane, through the here at the board, Teddy, and I said, no, and he told me then, then Dennis Hurley, who, who, as everybody knows, travels to matches with me, is a member of SARS, the president of SARS. His name popped up on my phone. I actually left the room and took the message. And when he told me, he, he confirmed what had been kind of circulating in the room. And there was a general sense of sadness in, in I don't know, there might be 70 or 80 people at the meeting. And I, I sent a message up to the top table and they, they had got it. They had heard the rumour, sadly, and it was true. But it's incredibly, incredibly sad. And, you know... You know, watching the papers this morning and social media, there's genuinely shock and distress at Teddy's passing at 57 years of age. So sudden and so unexpected. Yeah, and I mean, I saw him uh, pictured watching the under-21 match on Sunday. Yeah, ironic enough, Mary, my wife, was, was at the match. She was in the VIP section, rare enough of peace. And Teddy was there with his great friend Tomas Moll and they were having a bit of banter. And he, Mary said to me, he was in absolutely brilliant form. He's a short son, the sun was shining, Cork were winning, and he was having the crack. And as he always did, he was that kind of a character. And she said, when I texted her last night, she just could not believe it. Like, that, the suddenness of it all has kind of taken everyone by surprise and really shocked. He was, as I said, uh, he was in great form last Sunday. And of course, the only player to win All Ireland senior football and hurling medals in the same year. I mean, Teddy was really a living legend. Without a shadow of a doubt. And I, I was reading some piece there. I think there's eight players have won both medals. Most of them are from Cocker, honestly enough. But Teddy is the only one, as you said, to win it in the one year. And I was on there with PJ and Tomás and Larry and the opinion line a couple of minutes ago. And that will never again be done. I don't think any player is going to win the two medals in the one year. 
the way the inter-county season has gone is just too condensed and you can't do it. And for that alone, Teddy deserves to, to stand there um, on his own for the rest, for, for time memorial. It will never again be done. And, you know, it's so fitting that he should get it because he was an exceptional hurler and an exceptional footballer. And better still, a great guy. Yeah, I saw one commentator I was reading in one of the papers today saying, we'll never see his likes again. No, it's quite possibly not. And, you know, there's so many pictures, photographs doing the rounds there of the, 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 the way he could leap for the ball in ball hurling and football and catch them all the time. He'd never drop it. Larry told a lovely story. He he said to Larry, Larry wouldn't bother jumping because they'd wait for the breaking ball. But it never broke because he always caught it. And he had that unique ability he was an outstanding hurler and footballer. And when you consider what he won to show over the years, he won every major run in the game, ironically enough, except the county senior hurling medal. And his son, Keon has four of them. But ah. that, that won't define Teddy. What defined Teddy was the man he was on and off the field. Yeah, I mean, because on the pitch, uh, it, like it was his physical strength and that aerial ability, wasn't it? That's what really made him stand out. Yeah, that's what made him stand out. You're spot on there. He was a powerful man. And probably at a time when the game wasn't, the, the physical conditioning wasn't as good as it is nowadays. There's so much going to it. No players look after themselves in a 12-year-old period, 12-month period. Whereas back in the day, the guys would take the, the league somewhere serious. Then they get fit for the championship. The, the preparation probably wasn't as intense. But he was a powerful man, well-built, broad shoulders on him. And his leap in hurling and football is incredible, absolutely incredible. He he could go so high, you know. He, he probably defied logic at some stage <laughs> some of the balls he was catching. And, and then when his playing career came to an end, he still st- he very much stayed involved. Oh yeah, he got involved in coaching with Sars. He coached Leash briefly. He was involved as a cock selector for a couple at a couple of underage com- uh, teams for a couple of years with Sars. Uh, he coached Passage then last year. But Sars was his love. He loved Sars, his club. He was actually the vice chairman of the club at the time of his passing. And he gave Sars so much time to Sars. And uh, Dennis Hurley was telling me last night, on Monday, he he was they're trying to secure some extra land. And he was on it on a bank holiday Monday. Imagine that now. He was around trying to do a bit of business for Sars on the bank holiday Monday. Did a junior hurling match Monday night below on Carrick Tool that he couldn't go to because he was probably doing some other Sars business. And he, he rang three or four times to know how the game was going. He really was wow. immersed in Sarah. And to be fair, Glenn Moyer, his football club, he's a great footballer, Glenn Moyer, was vice chairman of Sarah's and working every day trying to do better that club. And, you know, look, it's so sad for his family, his kids, his Una, his grandkids and so on. Look, it's, it's just terribly sad. Yeah. It's unfortunate, we seem to be talking about this so often this year with our own colleague, Paddy Palmer, I know, Teddy, you know, it just goes to show life can be so fickle, can't it? Yeah, yeah, and it can be taken from us all in the blink of uh, an eye and our deepest, deepest sympathies uh, to his wife, Una, and to Keen and to Niall and, and to Nade and, and as you said, to the grandchildren and the extended family because the loss they are experiencing is just huge uh, today. Listen, Finbar, thank you for that and thanks for joining Sorry. us on the programme. No problem, Trisha. Thank you. Good Bye. morning to you. That is uh, Finbar McCarthy, our GAA correspondent. And I saw a lovely WhatsApp uh, in as a tribute to the great Teddy McCarthy that's worth a mention. And this is from uh, Finbar Cheehan in Mallow. 
who says one of the greatest hurlers and footballers ever to grace the field of play a true Cork legend the only player to hold an All-Ireland football and All-Ireland hurling medal in the same year Fimber said I used to marvel at the way Teddy would rise to fetch a ball from the air I often thought he'd springs in his boots a true son of Cork always played the game fair and never pulled a dirty stroke he had it all skill commitment and passion every time he donned the red and white of Cork are for his beloved club Sars and Glanmire thoughts and prayers are with his wife Una sons Kean and Niall and daughters Sinead brothers and sisters Sars GAA club and Glanmire a sad day today for Cork as a true legend has left us and a quote by William Shakespeare that best describes the great Teddy McCarthy some are born great some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. Rest in peace, Teddy McCarthy. People remembering uh, the great uh, Teddy McCarthy and people very shocked with the news of his passing, just shy of his 58th birthday. One uh, person says, what a great character Teddy McCarthy was. We will never see his likes again. Another said, a legendary figure of our game and he has been taken too soon. And John, the well-known GA man in Mallow, says, I can always say I was in the company of Teddy McCarthy in O'Keefe's bar in Mallow. Uh, John says he was a true Cork GAA man. Thank you for that. And then Michael wants people to also please remember uh, the Pope in your prayers today. The Pope is undergoing abdominal surgery. Yeah, I was reading earlier he's gone for a hernia operation. He went in for a checkup yesterday and he was admitted to hospital and he's having a hernia operation. Now, he did. He had uh, colon surgery about two years ago and he is, uh, he's suffering from a hernia that's causing recurrent painful and worsening symptoms. So he is being operated on today. So Michael and Castle Lambert said, please remember the Pope in, uh, in your prayers today. He's having a lot of health problems. May our Blessed Lady protect him. Also, Michael says, 27 years ago today, Detective Jerry McKay was murdered by the IRA. A sad day for the Gardaí and for the country. Goodness me, it's not hard to believe that that is 27 years ago. So we remember Detective Jerry McCabe and, of course, his family. Irish optometrists have called for an end to the geographical lottery in children's eye care, as well as the establishment of a national public programme for children over the age of eight. To explain further, I'm joined by John Weldon. Now, John is spokesperson for Optometry Ireland. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning, listeners. And you're welcome to the programme. I suppose, firstly, explain to us what sort of geographical inequalities are you seeing across the country when it comes to eye care for our children? Well, irrespective of what our members are reporting, we surveyed each of the CHO regions to see what they were doing to provide care for these children. And really, the results are pretty shocking across the the CHO regions. There's a massive disparity. For example, in certain parts of Dublin, you can have your child's eyes examined freely and have free spectacles dispensed. But if you come down to the southwest and you go to Cork, Kerry or, or other areas in the southwest, there is no active scheme present and no payment available for parents. So what should be good for the goose should be good for the gander. So there's a discrepancy in costs depending on where you live, what your postcode is. Absolutely. And God help us if you were to live in the northwest in uh, Sligo and Donegal, they have no provision of service at all for those children. So 
no matter what difficulties you had, they can't even give you an estimate of how long you'd be waiting because they have nobody in place to provide that service. Isn't there a school screening programme for eye care in place? There was indeed, Patricia, and in actual fact in the constitution of the state and various medical legislation, the state promises to look after those children with eye care and provision of an appliance where it was necessary for them. Unfortunately, back in the Great Recession of 2009, many senior nursing staff who were public health nurses and so forth uh, took early retirement. They, 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 they went and they weren't replaced. And these people were the, the, the central part of the National School Screening Programme. So that programme has very much fallen by the wayside since then. And I'm assuming you also would have had children missing screening because of COVID. Well, in actual fact, all through COVID, optometry was one of the very first professions to design safe programmes and protocols to be able to deliver eye care safely. Uh, we were commended by the Minister of Health for so doing last year, and we worked seamlessly throughout the COVID time. Uh, in addition to that, many of our members worked in the vaccination programmes as well to contribute to the national effort there. Um, myself and my colleague Martin O'Brien, the chair of our education committee, were the first two optometrists to qualify and register and administer vaccines well up in, in Dublin at the start of the, the COVID vaccination programme. And we were very happy to contribute to that effort. And in the same way, we're very happy to contribute to what should be a national equitable scheme for all of our children. And is it fair to say, John, that the earlier you can detect a problem with your children's vision, the better? Well, Patricia, that is the critical element. You know, for example, if a child is missing from school for a couple of days, how far they fall behind so quickly. So if they have a vision problem that's preventing them from seeing stuff on the blackboard or doing their homework correctly or taking in information from the teacher, how much more disadvantaged will they become? And there are three major areas that we think about in in, in this type of conversation. First of all, what we call uh, an amblyopic or commonly called a lazy eye. And that once that's detected and treated correctly and in a timely fashion, it's easy to manage. But if it's not detected and not treated in a timely fashion, it results in intractable or irreversible loss of sight in one or both eyes. And that will rule you out of things like being a bus driver or a train driver, a pilot or a guard or a member of the Defence Forces. The second element is where what we call a, a squint or a strabismus, where one eye turns and doesn't return to its normal position. That requires early detection and surgical intervention, and we all know how long the surgical waiting lists are across the country. But particularly in ophthalmology for eye surgery, um, there, there's a very long waiting list. And then the third element we think of, Patricia, is short-sightedness, or myopia as it's correctly called. This means you can only see at a very short distance, so again, you can't see what teacher is showing you or indeed what's on the board. Yeah, and children are very good at covering that, aren't they? They're not going to openly come home and say, I'm not seeing what's on the blackboard. Yeah, it's strange. It's often presented in general practice in many, many different ways. You know, in actual fact, strangely enough, in more recent times, kids will actually um, 
create symptoms or invent symptoms because they want to wear spectacles because it's kind of a cool thing to do. So that kind of almost is contrary to what we would think about. However, what we're interested in and what the profession of optometry is interested in and certainly concerned with is that all of our children are seen. Those that need help get that appropriate help, but very timely, and that they move on to not be disadvantaged by that in their careers and education. Yeah, 100%. So how many optometrists are in your organisation, John, and how do you feel your members could help? Well, that's, that, that's the central part of the issue, and I suppose that's what gives us a little bit of frustration, Patricia, because we've over 700 members in our professional organisation who are all highly trained and qualified professionals, regulated healthcare professionals under Kuru, and in over 350 locations across the country. So they're very easily accessible. They are skilled and equipped to deal with all of these issues. We're just waiting for the HSC and the Minister of Health to sit down around the table and help us contribute to designing that effective national programme for children's eye care. And that's what I saw in your press release. You're calling on the Minister uh, for Health, Stephen Donnelly, to, to intervene. And, and you, you certainly, as you say, you need to sit down with the HSC. Yeah, and you know, it, it's, not, it's not unprecedented to, to work in this fashion, Patricia. Uh, a little bit earlier on, around about 22, 23 years ago, when the national diabetic care programs were being set up, there was a consultative body with endocrinologists, ophthalmologists, other allied healthcare professionals, and representatives of optometry. And I attended those meetings with the Departments of Health and Finance, and it helped to design a very effective diabetic care program for, for, a, for a national program. And we think we should work in the same collaborative way to help our children. OK, we'll keep a close eye on this and wish you luck with it, uh, John. Uh, but in the meantime, for any parents listening, if they're worried about their children's eyesight, what should they do? Absolutely. Your first call is to your local optometrist. They will see you. They'll see you in a timely fashion. They will help you. If your child needs additional services like surgery or other interventions, your optometrist will arrange and refer them to the appropriate person. But the first port of call is your optometrist. OK. All right, John, th- thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Good morning to you. That is uh, John Weldon, who is a spokesperson for Optometry uh, Ireland on that need, an urgent need, I feel, at this stage to establish a national public programme for children. And it really shouldn't be dependent on where you live. And, you know, also, you know, looking at the different areas where some parents will have to pay for glasses. If you're lucky enough to be in another area, you'll get an allowance. Uh, You might even get your glasses free. Um, But that shouldn't be dependent on your post code that should be nationwide and given to every child and every family that needs it. Now you might be surprised to hear that just one dog fouling fine was issued by Cork City Council in 2022 across the whole year and none has been issued for the first three months of this year. Local Labour Rep Peter Horgan has accused the council of shrugging its shoulders when it comes to dog fouling and Peter Horgan uh, joins me this morning. Good morning to Peter. Good morning, Patricia. Now, I would love to think that the reason is because there isn't a dog fouling issue in the city, but I take it that's not the case. Absolutely not. And if you speak to anyone who pushes a buggy, has a wheelchair or a walking mobility issue, um, they'll tell you that the issue of dog fouling is rampant all over the city and also in parts of the county as well. But the problem is, as usual, 
uh, an issue of enforcement. Um, the city council, you know, I did say they shrugged their shoulders and I stand by that because we've had the same excuses for the last number of years. I've been raising this matter since 2017 and it's the same issue again and again and again. You have to prove a negative, you have to prove people not picking up after the dog and you have to be prepared to go to court. Myself and the Labour Party and Councillor John Maher have put in proposed bylaws. They've been rejected because they're not in keeping with national laws. But there's no effort apart from a poster competition every year, which is all well and good. Poster competitions are great, but there's no effort in actual enforcement on the ground. When you look at the high density walking spots, I'm talking like the Marina, Ballancolic Park, um, the Glen River Park on the north side of the city, you know, and, and the high density areas in the city as well, you know, you don't see enforcement happening. And and that that is the responsibility of Cork City Council. We can have all the bells and whistles of a local authority going off to South Korea, going over abroad, but the belts and braces approach of, of looking after the city, cleansing the city, enforcing fines when there's littering, because this is littering, it's dumping. It's, it's you know, everyone knows it's wrong. We don't need a poster to tell us it's wrong. But the fine of one one fine in 2022 you know, is is just I would say it's shocking, but I'm not shocked because yeah, but it's but, standard but, but, but on the I mean, other you, you touched on it there. Isn't the big problem for the dog warden actually catching the dog in the act and then watching the owner walk away? So yeah, the issue, it actually isn't a dog warden issue. The dog warden has no responsibility for this. It's actually a litter warden issue. So the problem is, like you said, it's proving a negative. We've tried to bring in. Uh, various different bylaws over the last number of years when once J- Councillor John Maher got elected as a council of simply something situation if you're in control of a dog and you don't have something to clean up after the dog with then that's the fine now that's a very stark uh, approach but we're at that point where we have to have a stark approach because if you had the front page of the Echo or on your show on a Monday morning 100 dog fouling fines were handed out last week it would send a message to people who think that they can get away with it because they know they can get away with it now look at one fine 2022 they are getting away with it but the problem is if you compare the city and the county uh the county in cove i was speaking with my colleague council Carl this morning on this they put out to about two and a half thousand uh dog bags a week in cove they're, they're proactive with the dog bins. They're proactive with providing people with the means to cleaning up after their dogs. The issue isn't resolved in Cove. The issue isn't resolved in Cork County. You know, there will always be people not picking up. But if, if you have a bylaw where you have at the front of a stage on high-density walking areas, the bag's available, the dog bin's available, and then you have a bylaw that says, well, if you're not in control of something, if you're in control of a dog and you don't have anything to pick up, that's your fine. Then that... The naysayers to my to that proposal who say like, what if, you know, someone picks up after the dog, they pop it in the bin, and then they, then they come across a little warden, and it's bad luck. Well, that doesn't arise then because there's plenty of dog bags around available. That's not done in Cork City. We don't take that approach. They've taken that approach in Cork County, and they're to be commended for that. But, you know, we have a we we have a border between Cork County and Cork City. People go walking in Cork County with their dogs. People go walking in Cork City with their dogs. There has to be some sort of joined up approach on that. If Cork County can do it, why can't Cork City Council? Yeah, I, and I know I've mentioned this before a number of years ago on, on holidays in Australia. In Australia, when you're out walking with your dog, if you don't have yourself have the bags on you, um, you get fined. It's, it's an instant on the spot fine. And on two occasions while over on holidays, 
out walking with my sister-in-law's out with my sister-in-law dog on the lead and actually on the lead she has this little container that has the, the poop bags in it and twice we were stopped on two different days by a little warden she had to open the container to prove that it wasn't just an empty container swinging off the lead to prove that she had the bags and I just thought wow <laughs> It's a measure of responsibility and majority of dog owners are responsible. Let's be honest, they are. But it's that small minority that are ruining our streets and ruining their reputation then of other responsible dog owners. Another issue that we have as well, and it's the same in the county, is if a fine is accused or levied, someone has to be prepared to go to court and stand up. So if you say, well, I saw Mr. X not picking up after their dog, you have to be prepared to go to court and say that in court. And Pe- that's yeah, a big, people won't do that. A big responsibility for citizens to do. What we need, actually, is under the Circular Economy Act, which came into force last year, Senator Mark Wall of the Labour Party in Kildare had an amendment that was agreed by the government regarding CCTV and illegal dumping. That's what dog fouling is. It's illegal dumping. It, was a, it, was, it bypassed the GDPR requirements that the Data Protection Commissioner wanted imposed for CCTV and illegal dumping. We're tw- more than 12 months on from the signing of that Circular Economy Act. And working with Sean Sherlock and, and Mark Wall, we found out that it's now the responsibility of every single local authority to draft up a code of practice for that GDPR CCTV section of the Circular Economy Act. They have foisted that back to the local government management managers association who have yet to respond and, and submit a draft code of practice to the department. So we're giving local authorities the tools to, to catch illegal dumping in all forms via CCTV, yet 12 months on from giving them that tool, they haven't utilised it. And a big problem then that in defence of the county councils is that they're saying that they have to hire a data protection uh, officer to monitor the data and all that. So the question now is, right, well, have government resourced the local authorities to deal with illegal dumping, you know, including dog bowling in that as well. Um, so like that, there's a whole, there's a lot of finger pointing here you know, you over there should do it and the other person's points over there to you. There is an area of personal responsibility of dog owners, but we just need, I think, as a Cork City and County Councils, need to work together and develop, you know, you know, move ahead of the rest of the country and say, look, this this is the line and no further. Yeah, put, put deterrence. <laughs> yeah, uh, put for sure, put um, deterrence in, in place. Uh, like, it, like we need, we certainly need to do something at this stage because it is one of the main issues that we get complaints in about when people are talking about any kind of littering. People will always bring up about dog fouling. And actually, a number of people are saying, surely CCTV uh, cameras are the way to go. But as you explained, it is the way to go. But the council's hands are tied because if you could catch people and then have the video evidence, you wouldn't need somebody to go to court to say, I saw Johnny exactly. not pick up after his dog. But the councils do have that, that power now once they get that code of practice in. So we need those codes of practice sent into the department, accepted and put into practice. And But, but a lot of the time in this in Ireland, in, in, in these sort of instances, there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. And in the meantime, we just see more littering and more dumping happening. And, you know, it is a public health issue, issue. you know, anyone with young children, I have young children myself, you know, you're walking along and, you know, a four-year-old will point and say, what's that? And, you know, you're, you're scrambling with the buggy to make sure the four-year-old doesn't pick up what's left by the dog, you know, and many. And so, like, it is a public health issue. I know the Green Party has some, uh, some legislation about increasing the fine exponentially. That doesn't, to me, I, I don't think that addresses it. 
because the issue isn't it doesn't matter whether it's 150 fine or a thousand euro fine if if there's no fines being levied then what's the point you know you need enforcement you need litter wardens to be given the tools to to keep our streets clean which is what they're they're tasked to do by the local authorities and we need the local authorities to kind of step up on this okay Um, a couple of people are pointing out that we need more bins to dispose 100%. of uh, the dog waste. And somebody who works with the local Tidy Towns group says the amount of people who do actually pick up after their dog but then toss it into the ditch. Or even worse, hanging it on a bush, yeah. on a tree. Many, many bus stops around me, you'll see it. It's um, crazy. You know, on a bus if, you're, if you're going to the lengths of picking it up, then either get it to a Bang. bin or, or bring it home. So the issue of, of of bins and specifically dog bins, they are in the county council areas. They're down Little Island, Cargilline, Cove. Um, but, you know, in the city, they just don't operate it. They say we have bins on site, um, regular bins. But a lot of the time, those aren't there. If you walk down the marina, the bins facilities just simply aren't there. Um, you know, I've asked for that to be, to be improved upon, to be added for specific dog bins to go in. Um, there is uh, an argument against putting in anything I hear sometimes from the council that if you put something in, it'll be vandalised but if you're going to approach running a city or a county with that kind of attitude you'd never install anything um, you know with the fear of, of, of vandalisation you know we, that that's an issue of society itself that's another argument for another day but we need if you were providing proper dog bins proper dog bags like they do in Cove and the rest of the county um, there are know, solutions you're giving people the tools yeah. and, and you're you're stripping away the excuses and because someone else a lot of the time over the years you hear those excuses of well there's no bags there's no bins well if you put the bins put the bags then you're like well what's the issue now yeah you you have no excuse somebody else is pointing out uh, an issue and i remember we did an interview uh, on this back in the summer of uh, 2021 and it was an initiative put in by cork city council because you know it's not just here in cork that we've got a problem with dog fouling and they ran a campaign called Clean It Up You Dirty Pup and what they did was they had stencils in areas where there was a lot of dog fouling. They had these stencils uh, on the ground uh, and then they had volunteers going out in each area and they'd spray and highlight where dog poo was where somebody hadn't picked it up and it was in fluorescent uh, pink and it actually worked. They saw a reduction of 55% in dog fouling in the three month uh, trial and you know they were saying it was all to do with the collaboration with community groups to encourage people to be more uh, responsible so like it's a city council thinking outside of the box and I think that's what we need to do we need to what we have isn't working so we need to look and and try and get ideas or or come up with our own solutions 100% and like to be fair the city council they did also do a pilot last year of plain clothes litter wardens Um, sounds very NCIS I know but plain clothes litter wardens you know doing it I never saw any results out of that. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think, and I don't think anyone saw any results out of that. So, uh, you know, it's it's well and good thinking outside the box. It's well and good doing a three month pr- trial project. But if that trial was successful, why wasn't it increased upon? Because the issue hasn't gone away, you know. And it's not a nine. To, this isn't a nine to five issue. You know, people are most of the time. I'm not a dog owner, but people I know who have dogs, they work walk them in the early in the morning, late at night. That's your main time for walking a dog if, if you have a job and whatnot. Um, but, you know, we just, we do need outside the box thinking, but the very basic enforcement and, you know, preventative measures that can be done by more bins, more more bags and, and more on the beat 
litter wardens, wardens okay. and a presence. And and because if you know there's a presence in an area, you're that, not going. You're you'd be less inclined, I would think, to do it. Yeah, well, it's like when there's a speed van, you're constantly monitoring your speed to make sure that you're not you're not going to go over the uh, speed limit. Not that you should ever drive over the speed limit. Uh, and just a final one, Teresa is just back from a holiday in uh, Spain. She said, "How come other countries?" don't seem to have this problem with dog waste. She couldn't get over in the part of Spain where she was. There was little or no evidence of dog uh, fouling and yet there was lots of people out with their uh, dogs. How do we get the message through to dog owners that they need to clean up after their pets? A bit of it is in other European countries, they have very strong local government. They had the powers of local government are, are, are quite well endowed and they have a budget line for that. Um, and similarly as well, the police services over there have a, a, an additional range of powers that say the guards wouldn't have here. I don't believe a guard can can intervene in a situation like this. I think it's a litter warden issue for what we're talking about here. But in terms of local government, they have resources. They are, it is, you know, it's it's not like here where we're, we're heavily centralised with um, local government in terms of local government funding, as you've heard usually around budget time, local government budgets, you know, requiring central government top-ups. You know, that, that's what we need, you know, Personally, I believe like next year, our local elections, you could hold your local councillor to account on dog fouling if you wanted or the state of our, of our roads. But what we do need, we do need to kind of hold the council chief executives to account as well. Unfortunately, they're unelected. Um, you know, they're appointed by 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 the councillors. But we do perhaps need to start looking, relooking again, like we did in 2019 at a directly elected mayor. And someone who, okay. you know, we can we can pin the blame or pin the success on okay. uh, once and for all. That's an argument, for, certainly for another day, Peter. But in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning to you, Peter Horgan, uh, local Labour rep for uh, Cork. Pat Informoy says the debate, this debate has been going on for years. There's no point talking about more litter wardens as they won't be there in the future, as they won't be there in the future with a dog microchipped anyone in authority will be able to scan the chip, find out the information on the dog, who owns the dog, where the dog lives, etc. Then go down the DNA route. But for the length of time, councillors, TDs and other elected representatives are talking about this. They would have had that DNA database and other issues sorted out by now. And that's by from Pat uh, in Formoy. Staying on dog fouling, just a couple of texts in. A listener says, Patricia, we have a huge problem with this in Tregumna. It's a blue fag beach. People come for a swim. They let their dogs loose while they're swimming in the water and then off the dogs go. We've no bags, we've no bins which by the way there should be, says this texter, in order to have the blue fag beach status. People walk their dogs also on the green areas and it's now basically a dog toilet to them. It's so, so uh, maddening. It really is. And for families then uh, to go along and, you know, have a picnic and their children, it's just shocking that people would do that. How do we get people to be responsible? And Maura says, why not simply ban dogs from parks and streets and let them do their poos in their own home, not in the public places? Well, Teresa had mentioned she was just back from Spain and she couldn't get over with the amount of dogs in the area that she was in in Spain and there wasn't an issue with dog fouling. But you'll notice in a lot of areas of Spain, they actually have official dog parks where you bring your dogs to. And then you still have to clean up after your dogs, but they are uh, official parks for uh, dogs. And maybe that's something that we could look at here as well. 0818 Let me go to a completely different issue now. 
because Sheila McCroom has contacted us. Good morning to Sheila. Good morning, Patricia. Now, I, I'm really disappointed to hear this. Tell me what's going on in your the housing estate where you live. Well, there's actually two housing estates. Um, there's um, Dan Cockley Park and Castle Court. Um, myself and my sisters, we set up um, a small little bed, a flower bed outside outside the park, you know, just to make it nice. Yeah. About three years ago, and we noticed flowers going missing, but we said nothing, you know, hoping they'd stop. And every year it's gotten more. And my sister, Abby, before she went away to Lourdes now last week, she spent her money and bought about 10 flowers, lovely flowers, you know, for her park. And we put them all in, and she bought one special pink dahlia, you know, for her husband, who's, who's dead. But she always, you know, when she passes up, she loves looking at it. And it was just nice. Yeah. And she, and she left stuff to me to water them. And I'm up from the night to water them. And they were gone, the whole lot of them. Oh. Taken out. And I, I, this is and this is this is a group. This isn't anything to do with tidy towns. This is anything to do with the council. It's just you no. and your sisters deciding to do your bit for your local community and brighten it up for everybody. Yeah. So, so you pay, you buy the plants every year and, and tend and look after them. Yeah. That's it. And, and so myself, my, myself, my neighbour does it in down here in the top of Comas Park. And they, they must be going the same way because they're after taking all them as well. Even the wild bluebells, they, they pull them up as well. But are they... Is this just vandalism that someone's pulling them up and when you go, you can see? No, no. Because um, the ones that they pulled up successfully, they took away. But the ones that they pulled up without the roots, they just threw them back down. So they're definitely taking them. To plant them somewhere else? In their own gardens, obviously? Yes, yes. Oh my God, that is just... I, I can't, I know, I can't. There's a new form of law, like, and my sister now, Abby, um, she's the most lovable, lovable lady. Like, I know she doesn't, she's coming home from Medjugorje today and all, and I know when she finds out, she's going to have a little cry for herself. Just, just sad. I know, because she she went out and bought that pink dahlia, and yeah. it, it's in memory of her husband, and what a lovely thing to do. And then for her to come back from her trip to Medjugorje to be told... Someone has decided to steal it. It is the lowest of the low. They, they, they took the whole lot of them. They took the whole lot of the half flowers. Uh, and it's and your own money you're spending on it as well. Yeah. Well, it's not so much that a lot. <clears throat> it's just that any time you pass, I, we pass it every day and it's lovely to see and you're picking weeds here and there and just picking it up bit by bit. And now just to see it desecrated like that very disheartening yeah okay so did anybody see anything did anybody witness anything I mean they must have had containers with them I know I know for a fact it's happening on Sunday nights anyway Sunday nights I I went up at nine o'clock and the flowers were there and I went back down then for a watering can and when I came up within one hour they were gone so it, was it was it daylight or was it was it getting dark at that stage? 
getting a small bit dark, maybe. Okay. But I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing. Like, this is very bad for them. It's it's shocking. It's just yeah. It's it's the lowest of the low that, that somebody would go to to that length in order to, I'm assuming, to have flowers for their own garden. Shame on them. Absolutely shame on them. Yeah. And if anybody's witnessed anything, please report it uh, to the Gardaí. But it, it really is awful. And you're going to have to break the news to your sister, Sheila. I know, I know. Uh, but um, I, I don't know, will she start, stop it like her? Or will she buy more flowers? I don't know. Because I, I, I'm only hoping by highlighting, you know, Patricia, that... It might stop. The person is listening to the radio now and they'll just stop. stop. And, you, and you think it's the one person doing it, do you? I'd say it's the same person every year, to be honest. But they're, they're getting, usually it was only one or two, but they took five or six now, Sunday night. And the one in Comus Park is gone as well. Like. I have flowers now to put in there, but I'm afraid. I know, I I'll, know. They'll be gone. I know, I know. I, I, I absolutely can understand why you would stop doing it. And that's a shame if you do stop doing it because you're doing it for the betterment of the community and to bring joy to everyone because there's nothing nicer yeah, that's, that's than it, passing yeah. an area and seeing beautiful flowers. Yeah, I agree totally. That's exactly why she was doing it. All right. OK, well, listen, we've highlighted it, uh, Sheila, and hopefully we can shame the person that's doing it to please stop. I mean, stop, all, all yeah. of the supermarkets are selling. Uh, I know times are hard and cost of living and all of that. But, you know, shrubs and, and plants, some of them can be very, very expensive. Save up your yeah. money and buy. Yeah. Please don't take them uh, just because they're planted in an area uh, and, and planted by people who just want to do something for their own community. It's it truly yeah, is shameful. Yeah, that's it. All right. Listen, Sheila, thank you for that. All right. And thanks, thanks uh, for joining All us. Right. And, and you can hear in her voice, bless her heart, how upset she is. But I think more upset for her sister who is going to come back. And that gorgeous pink dahlia that she brought in memory of her late husband has now been uh, taken. Uh, it really is shameful. 0818 103 103. You can always contact us as well via the C103 app. If you don't already have our app, please download it now from the App Store. C103 Jobs. Ward personnel, they've got vacancies for carpenters today. The number to call is 021-2339120. Health assistance and a social care worker are wanted for work in Charleville. Please apply to St. Joseph's Foundation. You can go onto their website or you can phone Neve at 86 a person is wanted to work on a dairy farm near Mallow Notes for the summer months. Experience would be an advantage, although not essential. 087 297 And a qualified electrician is wanted to work in a Mallow. Call 022 31200. You will find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. And I can see a lot of outpouring uh, for support and love for poor Sheila sharing the story of uh, the flowers that herself and her sisters have purchased and uh, somebody stealing them for whatever uh, reason. Teresa says, surely pulling growing plants like that, they may not even grow again in their own garden. 
garden. Yeah, but they seem to know what they're doing because she was saying if they pulled them up and they didn't get the roots, they left them. So they only took them with the roots and all so that they knew they would be able to then replant them, I'm assuming, in their own uh, garden. Teresa says, I feel so sorry for Sheila after all her hard work and rewarding work for that to happen. And someone else is suggesting that uh, Sheila and her sisters should set seeds Seeds, like wildflower seeds, mix them all up uh, together and almost make like a wildflower garden in that area. Surely nobody uh, would steal those flowers. Yeah, that's not a bad suggestion. Thank you for that. And a lot of people saying that they have nothing but sympathy for Sheila by telling her, her herself and her sisters to keep up the great work. The community certainly will appreciate it. 0818103103, John Paul taking your call. Now, as thousands of young people across the country are, as we speak, completing their first exam paper for this year's Leaving Certificate and Junior Certificate exams, we once again hear a call for students with dyslexia to be given more time to complete their tests. Fine Gael Senator Tim Lombard joins me with his views on this uh, topic. Good morning to you, Tim. Good morning, Patricia. And you're welcome to the programme. Now, I spoke uh, a few weeks ago with Rosie Bissett. She's the CEO of Dyslexia Association, who was explaining that in third level, students with dyslexia are afforded extra time. So it means the Leaving Cert class today, if they're lucky enough to get the points and go on to college and they're doing exams this time next year, they will have additional time. So what's the difference between second level and third level when it comes to exams? It's a bizarre scenario that we're stuck in at the moment. We're kind of stuck in a time warp, is how I describe it. We're looking at a scenario that uh, we have, what, nearly three, um, one t- uh, 135,000 students doing exams this morning. Probably 10% of that um, cohort are actually dyslexic. Some have been diagnosed, some haven't. And what the 10% require is they require additional time to help them work through the actual paper itself. And Rosie's dead right, and Rosie's a fantastic advocate for uh, people who are dyslexic. She does an awful lot of work with the Dyslexic Association of Ireland in a role as CEO. Would like to have a scenario that at leaving cert and junior cert level, they don't have the accommodations because they're dyslexic. And when they go to third level, they do qualify for the extra time. And it's a very practical way. What they do in the third level colleges is they literally put... Um, a note on your table in exam times and you actually you're not separated you're part of the group and you just get that extra time when they pick up the paper it's a very practical solution to an issue and the real issue here is that every time the exam commission look at this they refer back to a report that was done 21 years ago and they say it was an, an expert report done the world has moved on in that 20 years technology has changed how the sex of people operate in workplace and in education. So what I've been calling for on a continuous basis is that they need to review it, but they can't just refer it back to this report that they have, which is over 20 years old, because that is just an unfair bias regarding where we are with this issue. And, and I assume, Tim, 20 years ago, it was probably even harder to get a dyslexia diagnosis than it is today. Completely. And like I was talking to an individual, he actually emailed me and I rang him afterwards and he told me his story about being in school and being dyslexic in the 80s. He's in his 40s and now he's after he's struggling all the way through life. And I think when you talk about children and and students being dyslexic, we forget that 10% of the population is dyslexic. Majority 
are in particular of the older demographic itself. So we have a huge issue in maybe informing that cohort of society, you know, that you, you're probably the smartest man in the class or woman, but you just have a different way of doing your actual business itself. And we're not, um, re- you're so not, you're not reinventing the wheel here. If you look across to mm. even some of our European neighbours, the majority of them allow additional time at state exams for students with dyslexia. Yeah, like if you were to look at the European norm here, like look at France, 33% extra, Italy is 30%, the UK give 25% extra time. And this is at second level, at the same cohort I'm talking about this morning. Like, and then to think that when you go to third level, you actually get that accommodation. And they are reasonable accommodations that are granted because of your actual issue of being dyslexic itself. It's a bizarre scenario. And I all, I really feel for the 13,500 kids that are doing the Leaving Cert today that are dyslexic. They're unfortunately at a disadvantage. Unfortunately, they will need a little bit more time to go through the paper. They need a little bit more time to put it down on actual paper itself. And they won't be given that time because in many ways of a report, that's a two decades old. Mm. And, and dyslexia, dyslexia, Tim, is nothing to do with intelligence. Somebody with dyslexia just needs additional time to process the written word. Yeah, probably if you're dyslexic, your IQ is off the rails. You're actually one of the brightest people in the class. You just have a different way of actually computing and actually looking at things. And the smartest people in the world are probably dyslexic as we do some great cohorts out there that have kind of been great ambassadors for the actual dyslexic association itself. And I think this is about trying to change minds here. There's an awful lot of work been done in the last few years, I have to admit that. An awful lot of work been done by the Dyslexic Association of Ireland to change those minds. Um, but we still have huge issues about accommodations for uh, assistive technology, which helps children who need that help regarding actually reading and writing. But the technology that's there now from where it was even five years ago has totally changed. Yeah, it's come on, it's come on. And it's, it, and it's also fair to point out, you're not giving an advantage over students without dyslexia by allowing them 25% extra time or whatever it is. It, it isn't an unfair advantage. No, if anything, it's like it's trying to level the play pitch. Yeah, play yeah. Pitch. At the moment, it's actually a disadvantage for these poor ch- ch- children that are doing the exams today. And like, it's, it's just a bizarre scenario and there has to be movement. And I was talking to Rosie about this last week again and that's why I went so public on it because I just think of all the times we need to start talking about this, we need to make sure that we get moving for next year now. And the timelines for this are very, very clear. The Department of Education need to have a review and they need to move away from this peer review report that's two decades old. And they need to, to put in place by September the actual accommodations that are in place for these children to make sure they can do their junior cert and leaving cert in an environment that gives them the potential to reach their full potential. And do you and believe that some do you believe that some students will not reach their full potential and have not reached their full potential because Absolutely. of this? Absolutely. I know talking to parents and talking to teenagers in particular about the stress they're put under to try and finish a paper out when time runs tight. They need that little bit of extra time to compute it, a little bit to put it down on paper. And because of the actual time restraints that's putting them they cannot reach their full potential. And that's that's a crying shame because these people are probably the smartest in the class. They have so much to offer for society. And 
we have done so much in this space, but there's so much more to do. And like, it, as much as we're doing it with the adults, I or with the, with the, with the students, I still think the big cohort that we haven't tackled yet is the adults. Like the thing, the ten percent of our population are dyslexic. Mm. The majority of them probably don't know it. Like we need to have a program put in place, whether from the farming point of view with with Tashka or or Tagisht, which are really good knowledge of who's where and, and who's not, but also throughout the rural and urban communities. Like we just need to inform people, and like it's in many ways inform people how to work their mobile phone properly. In many ways, because they probably have the technology required to help them go through life on their mobile phone, scan to text, scan to speech, all there on their phone, they just need how to work it. So that's another code that just needs to be helped to make sure they reach their full potential. But this morning, it's about trying to talk about the literally the 1,350 kids that are sitting in front of an exam this morning and are running out of time because yeah. they haven't got God help time. them. Yeah, God, God help them. And as you say, it's it's too late for the class of 2023, but it could be introduced for the class of 2024. And by introducing that's it for the class of 2024, it'd be there for every year thereafter. And that's our real debate. That's where, that's our timeline. Like we need to keep on beating this drum for the next three or four months to make sure that the review they're talking about happens, but more importantly, they take an independent look at this. They look at the European norms. They look at what's required. They look how society and technology have changed in the last decade, just to make sure that we get a fair approach. And you rightly said, we're not looking for a fair, for an advantage. We're just looking for the ability for these people to reach their full potential. And that will help everyone. To me, it's, an, it's a win-win for everyone. And it brings everyone along on this circle of life. Yeah, but I go back to one of my first points to you. It makes no sense to me that students in third level who are sitting end of year exams, they get the additional time. I mean, that had to be sanctioned by the Department of Education at some stage. Absolutely. And the way it works, if you're dyslexic, is that in the primary education sphere, you probably are under pressure. Second, you get a little bit more help. And when you get to third level, you get unbelievable help. And that's the biggest problem with the education system if you're dyslexic. At the top of the ladder, when you're in third level, you do get the assistance that's required. You're fighting for it in second level. And in third and in primary school, you're fighting for diagnosis to make sure where or what is the issue with you. So at the bottom of the pyramid is the primary school kids. They're the people that are looking for the assessments, looking for the teachers to understand what's happening, looking for the parents to understand what's happening so they actually can move forward in the education sphere itself. When they get to secondary, there is accommodations made available, but the department needs to do more, in particular about exam time, and particularly about when people can get the accommodations. I have some people on to me at the moment who have children who have assistive technology in first and second year in school, but unfortunately they still haven't been granted the capabilities to use that assistive technology when they do their junior cert examinations. That needs to be cleared up. You need to, if you're given an assistive technology grant. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You need to be allowed to use that for the actual exams rather than waiting for the examination commission to agree to that sometime in third year. That mm. kind of confusion affects people all the way through. Yeah. But there is, like, there's movement, but there's a lot more to be done. OK, all right. Uh, keep us informed on this one, uh, Tim. And just finally, before I let you go, will I be speaking with you in a few weeks' time about school bus places and the lack thereof? Uh, is, is, that, is that just going to become an annual event? Oh, my God, my heart, my heart. Right. I hope not, but I just am not sure. Like, you, this review that happened, uh, that's... Again, the review that happened in, 20, in February 2021 for school transportation hasn't been published. We still haven't reviewed for school transportation. And I have been talking to nearly every WhatsApp group I have on my phone to make sure everyone's applied, to make sure everyone's on the system. So hopefully we've everyone actually on the system itself at this stage. I am deeply fearful of what's going to happen next September. And I, I personally hate September because that's the time when we have chaos when it comes to school transportation parents trying to live their lives, students not being on school buses and like... And the stress levels, Tim, that it causes is just incredible. It is beyond and it's the working cohort of society that are trying to work and try to work around school runs and people that are literally miles from the school and can't get out of school places and then it runs on for weeks and it could be literally to the midterm break before they actually get sorted. And don't get me wrong, there were some people in Ballinhasic who didn't get a sort mm. this year. Mm. And like, I think that was terrible as well. I am deeply fearful and I genuinely am. It's one of the most fearful times of the actual year. I still think this review that the minister has talked about is going to be published miles too late. Because yeah, I can, but I can't understand. We, we encourage people to apply. If your son or daughter needs a place on the bus, they know the numbers so they're going to need a place on a bus. Just put on the buses. And like we're on about this issue about cutting down carbon, cutting down yeah, emissions. Yeah. You take any day that the school is off, we drive in and out to Bandit or Kinsale Town, not a bother, because there's no traffic on the road. Like the logical solution to this has always been put the buses on, take the cars off the road. Mm. It's we're on about environmental challenge and environmental change. We're on about making sure we can reduce our emissions in so many ways. We're even talking about cutting the national herd, if you believe that. But the practical solution would be to put on enough buses yeah, there's to get one, the kids there's to school. There's one solution that could, that could work instantly. All right, listen, Tim, I know I'll be back to you again on that one. But in the meantime, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme.
God bless. Thank Good you. morning Cheers. to you. That is uh, uh, West Cork Fine Gael Senator Tim Lambert 0818 103 103. Just a couple of people in on littering and littering at the beach and lack of toilet facilities. Mark in Drimmer League was in Tregumna near uh, Skibbereen on the beach at the weekend and what a fantastic beach toilets were locked all weekend Mark said it was a bank holiday weekend the place was full of uh, tourists and then Mark noticed at the back of the toilets there was used toilet paper people had gone expecting the toilets to be opened they weren't short taken had to go behind the toilets and the evidence of the toilet paper was there oh dear God and Mark says felt it wasn't anybody's fault they'd no other choice but to do their business behind the toilet a block and Bill in Clonakilty was in the playground in Skibbereen and the trees he said that local people in the tidy towns had planted uh, they're all cracked somebody must have like bent them over they're all they've all been uh, destroyed isn't that uh, shocking tying in with Sheila and her story of the robbed flowers in McCroom that just seems like an act of a shocking act of vandalism that happened to the playground uh, in Skibbereen 0818 John Paul takes your calls Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice you know who to talk to CM this coming Friday and Saturday, street collections will be held all over the country. It's in aid of Hospice Sunflower Days, which is a national fundraiser on behalf of the Irish Hospice Movement. To chat about the importance of Sunflower Days, I'm joined by Enith Conway, who is fundraising manager at Marymount University Hospital Hospice here in uh, Cork. Uh, good morning to you, Enith. Good morning, how are things? I'm very well and you're very welcome uh, to the programme and it certainly looks like the sun hopefully is going to be shining for sunflower days uh, which will just add to the day. Now it's the, I was surprised to read this, it's the 33rd year of sunflower days. It is indeed. It's a really strong national campaign. 33 years is absolutely incredible. You you know, it's, you know, it's, it's made such a difference and it's made such impact. Is it one of your biggest fundraisers of the year? So Marymount are are one of the the hospices, um. So it, it it would be yeah. So it's one of our national campaigns. So there's that, and then there's the coffee morning. Yeah. And, and all year we're kind of thinking, oh my God, sunflower is coming. Like you know, it's something that we really really create a big buzz around, and lots of volunteers and everyone kind of pitches in and everything. And it's just it is something huge that we really focus on. Absolutely. And an important aspect for everyone to remember is that what's raised locally stays locally. So all the money that is raised here in Cork will go to Marymount. Absolutely. What's raised locally stays locally with um, Hospice Sunflower Day. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and it's great, you know, so people know that when they make a donation, it's going to, it's going to, going to go down the road for them or maybe to a family that they know will benefit from it. And outside of the street collections, uh, Enid, you also have a, a virtual sunflower garden. Can you explain that to us? That's right. So on the Hospice Sunflower Days website, you can actually dedicate a virtual sunflower. Um, so you can make a donation for a virtual sunflower um, and you can actually write a little dedication message and dedicate it to someone that you know, maybe someone that's passed or someone in your life now. Um, and you have that opportunity to write the message as well, um, which is a great way to kind of um, 
to 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 dedicate it to someone and to kind of honor someone as well, you know. That's a a really, really sweet thing uh, to do. And people can do that online at sunflowerdays.ie. That's it. That's it. Sunflowersday.ie. Yeah. Now, hospice care, uh, Edith, it's not all about end of life care. I think when people think of hospice, uh, there was once upon a time there was this notion, oh, that's where you go to die. But but it isn't. I mean, people will use the services of Mary Brown. And I've spoken with many of them on the programme. They use the services for many, many years. Absolutely. So there's specialist palliative care for those with life limiting illnesses, of course. There's also respite care and there's services for elderly people and there's bereavement support and pastoral care for family members, too. And then we have community palliative care nurses and specialists who also visit people in our care in their homes all over Cork and Kerry. So it's about making um, those times in your life, um, which might be the most kind of precious moments in your life, um, really, really special and really matter a lot, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the nurses here are absolutely incredible at doing that, as are the, the pastoral care staff and the bereavement support, you know. I think that bereavement support uh, services is, is so important because mm. what you're doing there is you're looking after those that are left behind. Absolutely. And like grief, you know, we used to understand grief in stages, but now we understand it as variable and it's so different. Um, each person is just so individual and, and our bereavement support staff are, are so aware of that. And they're very pioneering in their approach to supporting people with that as well, you know. And we had, of course, uh, the results of last year's census was released uh, last week showing, I don't think anyone was surprised to see it, we have a huge ageing population. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Many of them, um, Enid, will depend on hospice care. So your your work is only going to increase. It will indeed. And I, I think it's, it's true to say as well, like that you can you can kind of measure culture by how they they treat their their ageing population. Um, and, it, you know, it's something that we globally are facing as people are kind of living for longer and there's kind of advancements in, in medication and everything like that, you know. So the, the more that we kind of learn and the, the more we educate ourselves, the better we'll be able to treat this uh, growing community, you know. Okay, and we all have the opportunity to help support the great work of Marymount Hospice this weekend for Sunflower Days. So it's Friday and uh, Saturday. Is it right across the city and county we can expect people out doing street collections? Yes, absolutely. Street collections. Um, There's lots of our volunteers positioned in supermarkets and shopping centres as well. They're very friendly. Please come up and say hello. We have loads of gorgeous, bright merchandise with sunflowers on it. Um, Some tea towels with some some fantastic soakage for you. Like, it's absolutely going to be brilliant. Come over and say hello. Okay, and listen, the best of luck to everybody at Marymount Hospice. You really are a terrific bunch. And as I say, virtually, people can donate online as well at Sunflower Day. Uh, Enid, we wish you well with it and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Good morning to you. Thank you so much. Bye bye. That is uh, Enid Conway, who is fundraising manager at uh, Marymount Hospice. Please keep a lookout for those street collectors who will be out and about this Friday the 9th and Saturday the 10th of June. 0818 103103. By the way, we don't have uh, Peter Dowdell. I know somebody was asking about uh, gardening questions. 
questions. We don't have Peter. He's on a much, much deserved break. So he's not with us today, but he will be back with us next week answering all of your gardening questions. But we do have uh, quite an exceptional story uh, to hear about and uh, a, a wonderful lady joining us uh, to talk about the loss of her mother. And we'll be doing that in the next hour. Sarah has been onto the programme, said, seeing as you've been talking about responsible pet ownership, isn't it shameful to hear from the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals that they have never seen so many animals being abandoned, abused are and neglected. And this is predominantly uh, dogs. And actually because of it, the ISPCA has today, they're calling on private kennel owners all across the country to start lending their kennel space in order to accommodate the growing number of neglected animals that they can't find houses for anywhere else. It's part of an emergency appeal by the ISPCA and the emergency appeal is called Stop the Pain. The chief executive of the ISPCA, he's Dr Cyril Sullivan, he said there's been an unprecedented number of neglected animals this year with numbers he reckons are likely to double over the numbers they took in last year. He said it is staggering from their point of view. And he pointed out that their annual numbers for last year have already effectively arrived in in the first half of this year. So they're expecting they're going to have double the number of cruelty cases and neglected animals coming into their care. He says it's now a very, very serious situation. He said what we're really seeing is a national crisis in animal welfare and they're launching this national appeal today on the basis that they're determined not to leave any animal behind. Now, he explained that the increase in numbers, it's a post-COVID issue. And we all remember during the pandemic, there was a huge demand for dogs. And because there was a huge demand for dogs, the cost of buying a dog and a puppy tripled, sometimes even uh, quadrupled. And then, of course, when everyone went back to work uh, post-COVID, the market effectively died overnight. But, of course, the breeders didn't realise that it was effectively going to die uh, overnight. And there was many breeders... Some of them legal, but many of them illegal, uh, who ended up with all of these additional animals that they no longer wanted. And then you had people who took in animals thinking, you know, oh, this is going to be a pet for life, suddenly realising, no, don't have time for it uh, now. So they said they're seeing a double effect very seriously, he says, in terms, uh, particularly for breeders and the large numbers they're taking in. And he went on to talk about a recent case And I know I read about this a couple of weeks ago in the uh, papers where the ISPCA an inspector went to a location. Now, they'd got a tip off to the helpline that there was dogs in distress at this particular location. And when they went in, they found 116 dogs in one small room. They were all in cages on top of each other. No light, no exercise, no food. They said the condition of the dogs was absolutely deplorable. And even though... When they went in, the inspectors and found these dogs, all of their kennels and centres were full, but they still, they said they had no alternative but to take the animals to uh, safety. Now, as a result of that one case, they're renting temporary accommodation, but they've decided today to launch this national uh, appeal in order for them just to continue their work during this year, 2023, because of the increase in uh, numbers. They are, the ISPCA, 
has a plan in place to provide temporary accommodation and they're hoping to do this by appealing to private kennel owners and also vet services to ask them if you have any availability, please help us out. And the main thing then is they need to develop their own uh, capacity to have kennels uh, going into their own centres and to make sure that they take them out of the private kennels and then into their own uh, care. He's appealed for people to please consider fostering animals and see how it works out. You might decide after fostering a little dog, you might decide to adopt it, but there's, you know, you won't be forced into adoption, but maybe consider uh, fostering uh, a dog. And Dr O'Sullivan from the ISPCA said that the serious penalties in place for abusing animals will fines up to €250,000 and a five-year prison centre for cruelty uh, cases. He said the penalties are there, the legislation is there. And he says now at this stage, they just need to push for more resources to go into reinforcement in order to catch the people who are responsible. But it really is shocking to think that the ISPCA, which is just one charity working with uh, animals in, in this country, that already by, by this year, we're just into the start of June, they have taken in as many animals and dealt with as many cruelty cases as they did for the entire period, 12-month period of last year. That is very worrying going forward. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. I spoke earlier with Pura Sheila in McCroom, who was very upset about the flowers that herself and her sister have been putting out just in two housing estates in McCroom, just to brighten up the area for everybody else. And some, she reckons it's one person uh, stealing the flowers and they're taking them roots and all. So they're obviously planting them then in their own garden. Just shocking. Absolutely shocking. Somebody said that they were out last night for a drive on that new stretch of road between Kildallery and Mallow, which is a fantastic stretch of road, I have to say. Anyway, this listener says, I saw two ladies out for a walk and they were litter picking on the sideway. This is a brand new road, so it must have been people dumping things out of their cars or people while out walking. Absolutely shocking. And well done to those two ladies. I'm assuming probably part of the Tidy Towns group in Kildallery. Kildallery have a really good uh, Tidy Towns group, but it's just awful that people have to do that, give up of their time and go out and pick up rubbish that other people either dump out of their cars, as this listener said. I, I would I would be very slow to say it's anybody locally out walking, dumping rubbish. I think more than likely it's people driving by just throwing the rubbish out the car window. Shame. Leave it in your car, please, until you get it home. And then public toilets has kicked off when we were talking about lovely bank holiday weekend and people saying there were various beaches, public toilets and some of them locked. John in Newmarket wants to point out there is no public toilet in the town of Newmarket. He saw a woman who had to go to the toilet in the car park squatted down behind her car. Nowhere else to go. What a desperate situation to find yourself in. The poor woman. Orla in Bandon said, yet again, and Patricia, it was mentioned on your programme last week, busy weekend in Long Strand near Onahinsha. No public toilets opened. The toilets there have been closed for years. But surely now, since this beach is becoming so popular again, it's nearly as popular, Orla says, as it was back in the 90s. They need to reopen these toilets. And then John in Cove says people should know by now 
that Cork County Council think people don't need to use the toilet on a bank holiday weekend. Maybe they should hold it until the Tuesday after the bank holiday. Maybe they want us all to start using our poop bags like they do with our dogs. OK, we're going to send yet another email on to the council to say particularly those beaches that got mentioned that did at one stage have toilets or have toilets that are locked up. Are there any plans to reopen them? And I know there's that whole argument about antisocial behaviour and some people just destroy the public uh, toilets and the council don't have the outdoor staff in order to maintain them. I, 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 I do know what the problems are, but I think a lot of our listeners are right. Busy weekend. How can you expect someone to bring an entire family to the beach for the day, pack a picnic and not expect anyone to need to want to go to the toilet. You know, you have to have facilities in place. 0818 103 103. And let me go back to kind of the discussion that kicked off the debate about lack of toilets at beaches. And that was to do with dogs and dog fouling. And my chat uh, earlier with um, uh, Peter Horgan of the Labour Party. Ken has been on to us. Uh, good afternoon, Ken. Hi, Trish. How are you keeping? You well? I'm very well. You you think there's a simple enough solution to all of this? Well, I do. I suppose I've been looking at this now for years. And in fairness to yourself now, and many more stations around the country have been running topics like this for years and years and years. And it's time now at this stage to, 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 to get it started. So basically, your problem at the moment is with your, with your dog darting and people. There are certain clients, as you know and I know, that have no respect for man or beast. Yeah. We know that. But the situation is simple and cut to the chase. Each dog, as far as I'm concerned, should be tagged, should be chipped, and should be registered to the owner. It's as simple as that. DNA can be brought in. This was spoke about for years. And Mm. I actually, going back 10 or 15 years ago, suggested this to a particular uh, setup where this could be done. And I believe now they're talking about it. But talking is the word. Maybe it's going ahead. I do not know. So I, I don't want to hang yeah. myself by saying it's yeah. not. OK, um, and when I knew what you were going to be talking about, I did a quick Google search because I, do, I did remember that there was one local authority somewhere up the country. Turns there out was. It's, it's brought Le- it in. It's Leitrim. Leitrim County yes. Council last year Have brought in. Now, but what they did at the time was it involved dog owners voluntarily providing the saliva sample, their personal information, and then it was stored on a a DNA sequencing and stored on the database. I'd have to get on to Leitrim County Council to see how did it work. But I remember at the time they were saying, because it was costly, I think it was about €80 if they found dog poo and then wanted to check was it on their their database. So there's a funding issue. But we... We need legislation. We need legislation we brought in which if, would force every dog owner to have saliva taken from their dog and do it at the same time that you microchip. It would be as 100%, easy as that. 100%, Trish. 100%. You're thinking like me or thinking like a lot of people, I would imagine. This is simple. This is simple. We're living in supposed to be one of the richest countries in Europe, if not in the world. We have a great country. Some people have been knocking it, but Get the legislation in and done and dusted. A stroke of a pen. It can be done for numerous things. But as I said, when it's not been done, it's not been done. Get your dog registered. Get him chipped. Have him chipped. Some people will say, the goody-goodies will say, we cannot do that. We cannot be forcing people. Forget about that. You have to drive your car in the morning on the road. You have to tax it and you have to insure it. If you're stopped down the road, there's a link to your car, to where it was bought, Mm to who has it registered, 
Who was the last owner? It's simple. Don't cod me telling me it can't yeah, be worked. Yeah, you see, I yeah, and again, I can see one of the arguments that was put forward last year by Cork City Council, who, funny enough, was who we were talking about today because they only had one dog fouling fine across all of last year. And when they were asked about Leitrim County Council and what Leitrim County Council were doing, they straight away pointed to, yet again, the GDPR implications of transferring and storing personal data. But the point you make there, all of our personal data, any of us that own a car, is all there. Absolutely. So, and it's yeah, there. Yeah. There's no ducking or diving. Like, if you want to be ducking and diving in this country, we know what to do. You duck and dive. Yeah. But if the genuine fellow wants to duck and dive, he can't duck anywhere because there'll be somebody be able to track him because he's registered for everything. Plus the fact, if it will counteract this dirty stuff that's on the road, we all have dogs, we all love our dogs. But people do not know, and sorry, people don't realise that dog feces is lethal for children. Mm. If they get that into their eyes or anywhere else into their mouth or whatever, on buggies or whatever, into their car, you have another part. Now you have a cost. You have a cost to the government. So it's a knock-on effect. Plus the fact, if your dog is registered, and this is, this, I was actually going to contact you a good bit of time ago about this because I think you spoke to somebody about this already. Each dog will be tracked no, we the pro- and I'm not diverting from the problem of the dog poo at the moment, but I'm yeah. just going to go into the sheep because I'm looking yeah. at the sheep in the field. Yeah. Yeah. No, your dog is registered on a database. The sheep are killed by some poor farmer behind here in West Cork or Kerry, and he has no one to find. Well, who owns the dog? Actually, we don't know who owns the dog. Sure, he could be anyone's. No, he can't be anyone's if he's registered and tagged. On the database, if, yeah. On that's the it. database. And they could, they could do the DNA sampling from there, evidence. And yeah, then, well done. Well done. It would, no, it would certainly you, solve that problem. You have the toilet problem then as well. Yeah. I suggest this one time that we should put up cameras in particular places, vulnerable places, we call them, where you could have, you know, somebody will say to me, how do you know there's going to be antisocial behaviour there? Well, look, I'm not a fool. We all know where it takes place in different parts of times. So have your cameras up in vulnerable areas, like we say, in wooded areas where rubbish has been done. Put up the, the couple of cameras here and there and put them up where there's antisocial behaviour being done. I listened to your topic there while I go with that lady on about the flowers, the poor woman with her flowers. Now, if there's enough cameras on... We don't have to choke the place with cameras. You're driving your car, actually, you said it yourself this morning. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong. We know there's speed vans down the road and we know there's checkpoints and we're yeah. going to be all wary of that yeah. and we're going to make sure our car is tax insured and possibly have everything done to 110%. So, therefore, we, we don't care if we're stopped down the road. We don't give a damn because, why? We have everything right. Yeah. But if you haven't the stuff right... You're kind of on tender hooks. You're not going to hang yourself too much. And this can be brought in quite easily. But I don't know what the hold-up is. And well, they, they constantly say it's GDPR and the implications of GDPR and storing personal data. But just on, on your CCTV one, I mean, if any of us go for a walk in any town anywhere across the county or in the city, we're going to constantly be on cameras because there's cameras in all of the shops. I don't have an issue with being on a camera from the minute I leave my front door, come to work, do whatever I need to do throughout the day and then head home again because I'm not doing anything wrong. Correct. The only, the only people who are concerned about, oh, it's Big Brother watching. If you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't be bothered about Big Brother watching you. 
you shouldn't bother one bit yeah. because you're going to be tracked through some shop or something. Yeah. So yeah. I would also say then as well with the, with the antisocial behaviour and the robberies in country areas. I know I may say they're diversing from one to the other, but it's all linked. It is all now, linked. If, yeah. if you could have, uh, I, I spoke to a person about this one time as well when I spoke about cameras setting up in particular areas. I think they were talking about doing it. Maybe they are there, and maybe I need to be corrected on this one. But I reckon if you had a couple of big cameras coming off of these big motorways into country areas, into by roads, where you have anti-social, not anti-social behaviour, where you have uh, burglaries or robberies. The roaming, the roaming criminals. Correct, 100%. You're picking my brain. Your car is tracked going through, and at uh, the next junction, it can be pulled in. It's as simple as pie. You're a wise man, Ken. I don't know what I am. You're a wise man. Enjoy the fine weather and thanks a million for contacting us. Thank you. You're very much obliged. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 0818-103-103. Our lines are open. John Paul taking your calls. Text WhatsApp 86 The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Anam Cara are holding their face-to-face meeting in the Clayton Hotel Silver Springs, 7.15 this evening. All bereaved parents are welcome, regardless of the circumstances of the death or indeed the age of the child. For more information, you can call 085 288888. The monthly Mass in honour of St. Pio, that will be celebrated at this evening, 8 o'clock, that's in St. Joseph's Church in Lismire. While Bandon Library, they're hosting an exhibition for Food Waste Awareness Week, which is running across this week. It's going to be held tomorrow from 10am to 2pm and Skibbereen Library will host a talk on composting, that's for all, with Donal O'Leary. And on Friday night, a summer fashion show will be held in the West Cork Hotel in Skibbereen at 8 o'clock. Proceeds will go to the Skibbereen Community Playgroup and After School Club. Tickets for from the Play School are the Salon 31 in Skibbereen or you can call Claire on 087 467-8313 Cork today on C103 With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance CMIG.ie You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast Phone and text lines are currently closed Alice Donovan's daughter has fought for over two years to find out what happened during her mother's time in the Mercy University Hospital between December 27th, 2020 and then her death from COVID-19 in the early hours of January 30th the following year. Alison McCarthy joins me to discuss the findings of the Ombudsman report into her mother's death. Uh, Good afternoon to you, Alison. Hi Patricia, how are you? I'm I'm well and firstly just to say to you you're extremely brave and I really you. appreciate you talking about this uh, but, but I also think it's important because there are so many other families who will have a similar yeah. story to what happened to you and, and your beautiful uh, mother and yeah. maybe don't have the strength or the wherewithal to do what you have done. So so well done, well done on highlighting it. Thank you so much. Thank can, you, it means a lot. Can, can you firstly start by telling me about your mother? I saw her picture on the paper, this beautiful smile, what a glamorous uh, looking uh, lady. Before yeah. she got sick, what was life like for uh, Alice in, in her late 70s? What gave her joy? What were her hobbies? 
Um, well, you know what? Now she marries my dad fairly young. He was the only her only sweetheart, but he got sick himself there when he retired. So they kind of had plans, but he just kind of fell ill himself. So she minded my dad. Um, they were inseparable, but it's, like when he died, someone said one time, "You could have a life now," but I mean, she was lost. She actually, she was okay for a while, but you know, she just she just trotted along, but she didn't tell anybody how she was. You know what I mean? She was well enough. Um, she did suffer with um, COPD, but I mean, it never left her stop her. She loved her style. She loved her friends. She loved going to the over 60s. She loved an old sing song. Um, and she loved gardening. Yeah, she loved her hanging baskets. She loved it. She loved life yeah, and she loved was, family. Yeah, you know I mean? and even though she was missing her, her life partner, she was still getting on, oh, on yeah. with life and, of course, her family and, and her grandchildren. Yeah. So she and obviously with COPD, COVID hit. And I imagine everyone being very careful about ma'am yeah. and, and making sure she'd be safe. So she became unwell the Christmas of 2020. We're, 2020. Near, we're nearly a year now in, into the mm-hmm. uh, pandemic. Yeah. Had she been cocooning and minding herself? Yeah, oh, she didn't go anywhere. Like she was come to my house on a Friday and stay until Sunday. And she'd often sit in the conservatory and she'd be pondering. And I'd say, I could, I know what she was thinking. I said, what are you thinking of? And she said, can I stay another few days? I said, when she'd come up, she'd put on weight because she'd be fed. You know what I mean? She'd be, the food is handed. And she was like, I'd have no humour now for that. But then she'd clear the plate, you know, so. <laughs> but she was so, really, um, mind- but then she got sick. What 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 happened yeah. in that period around um, Christmas? She she actually, um, I suppose the first lockdown, she was fine because she could sit out and she, she had, she was seeing people coming up and down. But the second lockdown, when that hit, she kind of, she kind of cocooned more and just kind of, you know, um, was sick. But I suppose she was sick, but she, we were kind of keeping her out of hospital. And I'd often ring the Mercy and they'd say, look, she's fine. If she ever has to come in, there's only one case, she'll be fine. So I was kind of saying, ma'am, if anything happens, you will go in, you'll be fine. They might need to, you know, put you on a drip or give you antibiotics intravenously. They work faster and you'll be home again. Because when she did go in, she'd often ring me and say, they're going to, they, they, she'd ring me to say, um, they're going to send me home. This was before pandemic. And she'd say, I'm going to tell them I'll stay another few days. Like she loved the actual, yeah, you know, know, she loved the Mercy. Mercy was her second home. She loved it. Do you know what I mean? She was a but good, she, she was a good in, patient. She was a good patient. She was. Yeah. Um, she went into hospital from my house on December the 27th, um, just after Christmas. Like that, her breathing kind of got bad and I was taking her temperature and blood pressure, her heart rate. She was actually kind of sick enough, I will say that. So I rang and she was taken away by ambulance on the 27th. But she wasn't left. Um, she had to go to the ambulance on her own, which was like traumatic because her face that morning leaving my home was just, she knew she had a fear in her face, you know, a fear in her eyes. So I travelled down in my own car, I met her outside the mercy with my sister and I said, Mom, you'll be fine. You're coming home to me. You'll be fine. You know, so she was taken in and that was the last time I saw her really until the 28th of January. So it was. And of course, we're talking about restricted visits and and that period, unfortunately, where there was restricted Mm -hmm. visits. Now, she she didn't have COVID going into hospital. No, no. She had um, seven, six, I think, negative COVID tests. Um, they were done randomly. You know, I was never told a COVID test was being done. I just, it was my phone number. So I just get a text um, from the HSE saying, Alice, a COVID test has come back negative. So we were like, oh my God, no one has told me she was being tested. Yeah. Um, but thank God they were all negative. So we were fine. 
Um, and, and over that, over that month, she, she did she have her did she have a mobile phone? Were you able to talk with her? Oh, she did. Yeah, yeah. We we were yeah. But some days we'd ring and she'd actually be out of it. Like on one occasion, I think it was on the tenth or the twelfth of January. I actually rang the nurse. It was a Sunday, and I said, "Is my mom okay? I think she's after getting a stroke." Um, she was kind of sedated a lot. Um, on one occasion, she told me that everyone woke at the same time in the ward. Everyone woke at five o'clock on a Sunday evening. And I'm like, Mom, like, you, you'll be fine. She, and she'd say, it's easy for you to say that. You're not in here, you know. Tell me uh, about the 999 call that your mother horrific. made yeah. to the Gardaí. So she went in on the 27th of December. And as you can imagine, being away from us, she was never away from us. She was very anxious. So she was moved on the 27th of December to a ward. Um, it was actually a COVID ward, but she didn't have COVID. So she was put in a COVID ward with a negative COVID test. Um, so after two days, I think in that ward, on the 30th of December, I rang that morning around half 10 and I spoke, I was ringing her mobile and it was ringing out. And I rang the ward and um, I said, can I speak to the nurse that's dealing with my mom at the moment? So whoever answered the phone got the nurse and she was lovely she came on and she said no she's fine she said you know she did she ever ring the guards and I was like never and she said she rang the guards last night but it was kind of said like not serious it was kind of said she rang the guards last night you know um, and then I was continuing on speaking and the phone was taken from the nurse and it was an understudy um, no, I had the name, but I'm not going to give name on the radio because I had handwritten notes when my mom was in so I kept files myself handwritten from day one and nothing more was said about the 99 call. So I didn't make anything of it as such because my husband said, if anything happens to your mom, then, you know, if it's anything serious, the hospital will obviously have protocol to contact you and tell you, you know, what happened. So I, I knew something wasn't right. Now, I didn't mention the call to my mom because she was a bit sedated some of the time. And then when she'd come out of it, she'd be OK. And I'm like, I won't mention it to her in case I upset her. So... On the 30, this happened on the 30th at 5.56 in the morning. So on the 31st, I rang again. I kind of had my wits and I was like, something's not right. So I rang her and I said, Mommy, OK? And she said, no, my leg is bleeding. And I was like, what? What happened? I said, look, stay on the mobile and I'll ring the ward from the house phone. So I was kind of saying, you're fine, you're fine. So I rang the ward and the ward head came on and I said, I'm just ringing about my mum. I said, her leg is cut and the ward head who I had kind of confined it in because she was my only kind of form of contact. So I kind of knew her like from my mom being in and she said, no, she just nipped it off the side of the bed. So I'm like, OK, I said, my mom is on morphine and like her leg has to be dressed properly. And she said, no, it's fine. It's, it's worse than what it is. So I rang my mom again and my mom's kind of anxious. And I said, look, I, I said, I rang the ward head again. I said, look, we need to get in for five minutes. I said, she's never away from us. My brother actually lives with her, so he's in her bubble. So is there any chance? So she said, look, they're around today, but I'll try and get them in. So I think it was around 10 past 11, the phone rang and she said she, he can go over. So he went over and to be fair, she was sitting up in the bed and she was in her nice pyjamas, all dressed. And she said, go home, get out. She said, you'll get COVID. <laughs> so he just kind of said, mom, yeah, can I have a look at your phone? And she was like, what are you looking at the phone for? He said, I'll just check your credit. So to be fair, he said, thank God I tipped him off because when he did go into the phone, he screenshotted the time and date of the 999 call. 
So yeah. at least we had that to work off. Yeah, you know? and that becomes important to the story yeah. in a moment. Yeah. So over that Still, month then, yeah. you yeah. you started hearing or seeing your mum's health deteriorating. Yeah, I kind of he- heard it really, you know what I mean? Like, um, on one occasion I was told she was coming home, so we were preparing to take her home. Um, but then in the next breath, like they'd say, um, she deteriorated and she was being sent home again. I'm like, is she coming home or isn't she? You know what I mean? Because we had to get stuff in place. Um, but I, 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 I don't know because, like, my mother was called a wrong name. On more than two occasions, when I'd ring, I'd ring looking for my mum, Alice Donovan. No, I'm not going to say the other lady's name because it doesn't sound like my mum's and it wouldn't be fair because that lady passed away at the same time as my mum. Um, and I'd have to correct them. I'd say, that's not my mum. My mum is called Alice Donovan. Oh, my God. So, so on, you were getting information two, about another yeah. woman. Oh. Yeah. So after two or three occasions of being called the same person, in the end, I said, look, this is how we're going to go. I actually know my mum's NPRN number off my heart. I said, this is my mum. I gave the number and they were like, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, just make sure you're checking the right person. So they probably, they, they did, I suppose. Um, but after the 999 call, I did ring the guards when I, like just shortly after the following day, maybe, and just explained my mum is a patient and she rang from her mobile, but they couldn't disclose any information under data protection. So... I kind of followed up on that then after she died. So that's and why your, your I la- so much. And your last time to see your mother alive, tell that story how you brought in that photograph of, 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 so, of your mum. Yeah. So she left me on the 27th of December 20 and I tried every angle to get in, every ward head, every consultant I rang, every consultant that rang me. Um, I kind of kept saying, look, I know somebody that's father is sick in there and they're getting in. Why can't I, why can't I get in? So on the 28th of December, I just kind of said I had enough. So I rang one morning and I spoke to the ward head and I said, look, I need to get in. I said, she's never away from us. I'm just afraid of the condition she's in. Um, And the nurse said, I said, look, I had COVID. I just happened to say I had COVID myself and I'll take a chance. Now, I have underlying health conditions myself, but I have given my right arm. So she said, look, leave it with me. She took my PPS number and my name and address and checked me out, I suppose. And three hours later, I kept ringing and she came on and she said, yeah, you can, I think it's time. They were the only words. So I'm like, is it time that she's dying or is it time to come over? So my husband dropped me over and I grabbed a picture that my daughters had, a picture of my three daughters, Katie, Ali and Sophie, that was taken outside my mom's house with the hanging baskets. And the kids wrote on it, um, love you lots, like jelly tots. That was my mom saying that she wrote on a card. So I got in and I gowned up um, the wardhead was lovely. She escorted me up and brought me into the room first and just said, look, this is what we're talking about. We're going to start you on a morphine pump. Um, I think palliative care would be the way to go. And I was like, oh, my God. So I had the picture in my hand and she said, and who's that in the picture? And I said, that's my mum. And she was like, oh. So I was like, gasp for breath here now because she's going to open the door and I don't want to leave my mum. See me get a shock. So I went in and I had to turn around. I was like, oh, my God, because she was on the stuff was beeping and she was on a CPAP machine. Um, But like the the eyes were just like the frightened look in her eye. I will never forget it. Like all I wanted to do was take her home and I couldn't, you know. Oh, goodness. um, Yeah, that was on the 28th and I stayed a full hour. I overstayed my welcome, I suppose. 
it's awful to say that, but I never left her hand go. I had her hand caught and rubbed her hand and looked into her eyes for the full hour. Um, I just kept telling her she was a trooper and how brave I was. Um, she was clean. That's the only thing she was clean, you know. She was full of her appearance was everything, but she had a hospital gown on her. And I was like, where's all her pyjamas? You know, where there was nothing in the ward. Um, and did she know you so, were there? Oh, she did. Yeah. She did. Because I gave her the picture and she, I actually took a few pictures, you know, I put my hands on hers and I took a few pictures, but the pictures are live, you know, when you go back into them, you can yeah. hear her kind of talking, she would say my name and stuff, Alison, oh, Alison and the kids, and so um, the nurse came in and said, look, you'll have to go, you can overstage, you know, really, and I'm like, okay, so I left her hand go and I went to the door and I said, I can't do this, so I went back again, and three times I did that. And she was like, don't go. And I said, mum, look, I'll come back later. I'll just go and get the kids their dinner. And the nurse said, look, please don't tell her that because she's going to get really agitated and she's going to be looking for you. So I left and that was it. Um, I said to the nurse, I think my brothers are below trying to get in. You'll have to come down and, you know, I don't want to be the one to only get in. So she came down looking for them, but they were gone from the door because they were refused entry. Um so I never got a phone call from them any time that day or night, but I rang at two and three in the morning and I'd say the nurses knew me by, by name at this stage and, and I knew them by name. And they said, Alison, she's fine. Any deterioration, we'll call you, go to sleep. And I'm like, but I can't sleep. So on the Friday morning, I rang again and I spoke to a lovely nurse again and I have her name, but I'm not going to disclose any names. And she said, you can come over again. And I'm like, what? I put, I put down a night during the night thinking I'd never get in again. So I said to my husband, will I run now or will I wait an hour or two? He said, look, go with your instinct. So a little, I, he, he dropped me to the door and I actually ran from the car. I sprinted, I mean, hands and legs into the mercy. I was brought back into the ward and I sat with her. I painted her nails. I fixed her hair. Um, I just told her like how brave she was and how strong she was, you know. That was your last. I never, like we told, we tell each other daily that we loved, we loved each other on numerous occasions. Every phone call, love you, love you too. Um, so she knew that, you know what I mean. But she knew after my presence there that she was, she knew she was idolised, yeah. and she knew I adored her, you know. But her nails, I painted her nails. She was meticulous with her nails and stuff and her hair. Um, but a nurse came into the. Oh, she was actually feeling a bit cold. My mom, she was on morphine. And I said, Mommy, you're cold. And she kept saying, no, no. And I said, Mommy, you're cold. I kept saying it because she was cold. So I rang the bell. And after about 20 minutes, the nurse came in and out loud said, you have to go. You overstayed your 15 minutes. So like my mom's eyes then just looked at me as if to say, like, what is she saying there? You know, so I, I just kind of said, OK, I'll go two minutes, two minutes. So in the meantime, I FaceTimed my brothers. We had a family group set up. So something told me just to FaceTime everybody. So I, I kind of turned the phone to my mom and I had a brother in America. Michael Paul, I couldn't come home for, from restrictions. So I gave him his time. I gave everyone their time out of my time. You know, the little time I had, I gave up to share with everybody else. Um, so I left that day again and they said they'd give me a buzz if she deteriorated. But again, I got no call Um, I rang on numerous occasions. My family were fighting to get in. We were fighting amongst each other. No, we, I have to get in. I have to get in. But they would leave nobody in, only me, because I was in already. But I took a step back later that evening 
And I said to my sister, look, just go, you. I'll, I'll step back. I'll give up my time. Because I kind of said my piece, you know. So she got in. And she played all her Sonny and Old songs and Elaine Page. And yeah. she started reminiscing about Long Go. So, like, she had a different... We were different, you know what I mean? So she had a different talk with her. And she laughed and she smiled. And my sister left. And my sister called the nurse. And she said, what are we talking? And she said, she's going nowhere tonight. She's too strong. So she rang me when she came out. So about 12 o'clock, I rang again. No answer. One o'clock, I rang. No answer. So it was 2.13. We were all sitting at the bed, myself, my husband and my three kids. And I said, I'm going to ring again. So I rang and I spoke to the nurse. I have her name and all. And I said, look, I'm just ringing about my mum. I knew something was, wasn't right. She said, the nurse that's dealing with your mum at the moment is on her break. So she said, if you want to call back in about a half an hour. So we were sitting in the bed and I said, I'll, I'll call. And I said, you know what? Now I'll give her the nurse another few minutes to come up from her break, to go up and put on the PPE gear. And my phone rang at two minutes past three. Sorry, no. Within the same nurse that took the first call and said, your mother passed so peaceful. Um, and I just they just I just hung up the phone and, and rang my family and I just said, you know, mom is gone. So the phone rang again, it was a mercy again, and they said, Can you bring over some clothes? Because if you don't, she be laid out and what she has on her. And you can all come over. And I'm like, oh my God, like we fought for four and a half weeks. Every avenue, I tried everything, but we couldn't get in. But then when she passed, we can all go over. The amount of families that have, have said that uh, you wanted to be there when she was alive. Yeah. Not, it's, yeah. it's just, but uh, Alison, you then uh, had to go to the Ombudsman to find out. And that's why we're talking yeah. this week, uh, two years on, yeah. because the report came out on Monday. Firstly, yeah. you discovered you were led to believe that your mother had there was somebody with your mother when she died. And that yeah, turned out when, not to be see, true. No. Well, I only you see, I led when when they did. I'm going back to the 999 call. I spent two years on my own emailing back and forth to the Mercy, which communication was horrific. It was bad when my mom was in. And I actually generally thought because it was so bad when my mom was in, they'd actually give me the time and investigate me properly. But they didn't. So... I was in bed one night and I said, I woke up during the night because I wasn't sleeping and I came downstairs and went through the files again and I said to my husband, they're checking the wrong ward. Because I asked them what ward was my mum in when she made the 999 call and they came back and told me a ward which she wasn't in it. So all their investigation to my mum that was in the ward for the 999 call, they were checking the wrong ward for a year and a half. You and your sister actually got to hear... Yeah, I had to go down a long route um, with an inspector in, in the guard station in, in Anglesey Street, who was fantastic. I can't praise the guards enough. She followed up on it and she got me the call and she gave me the opportunity if I wanted to listen to it. And I said no at the start. But I suppose after the weekend, I kind of said I had to know what happened to her. So I brought my sister with me and that call will haunt me till I die. Um. My mum, the guard, and I want to praise that guard. I don't know his name. I went to thank him personally. I brought down chocolates and flowers and they couldn't take them. They were fantastic, the guards and the inspector. But she said her name and her address, where she lived, where she was, who she wanted them to contact, her age. Um, he actually asked her, did she want um, naval rescue, ambulance or fire brigade? 
and she said the ambulance, the guards. She said the guards because he asked her, and he asked her, was she okay? She said okay at the start, but she was able to tell him what tablets she was put on, what tablets she was taken off. She was moved in the middle of the night. Um, she wasn't in the ward she was previous, and she was alone, and her kids didn't know where she was. Please contact her family. Yeah, and that's and her last words. Yeah, that that's the, her, she rang because she was afraid that none of you knew where she was. Where she was. Yeah. God help her. And, and no, there her was last, other stuff. There was yeah. another one or two things as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm personally myself. I'm not finished with the nine 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 call because there's another route I can go down. And her last um, words to that young guard who took that call. She said, "Yeah, I'm seventy eight years of age, boy. Please don't forget about me." And he didn't. I have the guard evidence on a guard paper that's signed by the inspector in Anglesey Street Guard Station in York, stating that the guard in question made contact with the Mercy Hospital on the morning after the time that my mum rang and inquired about her welfare and checked up on her. But they don't have any, they don't doubt the call happened, but they have no record of it in either medical or non-medical. And I sat here a while ago and I said, granted, the nurses were busy, they might have made a mistake. But if a call is rang, if a guard rings the hospital, he gets two to the reception first. So it bypassed two people. It bypassed the person that took the call in reception, if they did. And it bypassed, well, it didn't bypass the nurse because the nurse told me it happened. Yeah, that's so how, that that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. how you found out. Um, Alison, yeah. I'm, you're just, you're so brave and I can see so many people are saying what a heartbreaking story uh, to mm-hmm. listen mm-hmm. listen to. And people saying, went through something similar. Somebody saying went through, uh, we were able to get in to see my uh, mother when she was dying in a nursing home. Yet I heard of two other families who were able to see their dying parent in CUH. Mm-hmm. It seemed to vary from more towards hospital it to does. hospital. Yeah. But what yeah. are you hoping, Alison, that by going public, in some way, um, that this will never happen yeah. to any other family. It cannot. It yeah. cannot. Like, at this stage now, we need a safeguarding bill to be put in place. Like, it's disgraceful at the moment it's not, it's not being processed. Like, we know our parents, we know our family members, so if anything happened, you would know by them, you know what I mean? I mean, care parting needs to be put in place. This is something that if this happens again, which a pandemic will happen again, and something serious will happen again, that if, if my mother was alive, I'd be left stay with my mother. Yeah. You know? You left to see her. You know the ter- deterioration. You know your parents. You know your your loved one. I've spoken with Magella Beatty from Care Champions. She is amazing. She's incredible. The Care Champions. Ah, uh, yeah, they're they're brilliant. Yeah. But she's been shouting that from uh, the oh rooftops. Oh my god, from the rooftops. Listen, yeah. I've got to leave it there, um, Alison. Uh, thank you once again. Thank and you. Can I, Patricia? My mum loved listening to you as well. Uh, like every now and then, she she'd say she always tells the truth, um, which you do, you know. She'd put you on there at night time and if she thought for one moment that I'd be on the radio mentioning her. Bless her heart. Know. Well, well, listen, she, you, and she's, she'll you, be very proud of you. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. There's actually two whistleblowers that came forward there. I think it's Margot Hannon and um, Sadie from Ballyano. Like, I know now it might seem that I'm coming across that I'm, I'm not running down any healthcare professional. I'm not running down the nurses. I can tell you nurses that are in the mercy that were fantastic with my mum. But the bad things that happened are outweighing the good, you know? Yeah. We'll keep so in I contact. don't want to come across. I know. That I'm no, no, per- you're yeah. not. No, you're, you're, you've, you've told your story and you've told it so uh, well. Listen, your beautiful mother, uh, Alice, may thank she rest so in much. peace. Look after yourself, um, Alison, and thank you for taking time to share the story with us. Thank you. Thank God you, bless. Patricia. Bye bye. Bye bye. Oh, wouldn't that break your heart? That is Alison McCarthy speaking about her gorgeous mother, the late Alice uh, Donovan. May Alice.
Uh, rest in peace. OK, I've got to go. I'm backed up on ad breaks. I can see a lot of outpouring of uh, love for Alison and people saying well done to her for uh, sharing her story. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara who produced. Nick with you for the afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow at 10. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.